0: This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Welcome. Lee has been my teacher, my mentor, my dissertation chair, my colleague, traveling companion at times, and my friend for over 20 years. So my problem has not been not having enough material to work with. It's having too much and trying to figure out how I can introduce him to you in a few brief minutes. As many of you already know, Lee is a champion of teachers and a lifelong student of teaching in all of its many forms. What you may not know is that he is the E.F. Hutton of our profession. When Lee speaks, the field listens. Uh, Lee was one of the first architects of the cognitive turn in research on teaching, arguing for the importance of the intellectual work that teachers did in the classroom. Not just what they did, not just their behaviors, but how they thought and how they made decisions. Um, He was one of the proponents of this turn in the National Institute for Education, arguing for a new direction in research on teaching. And when he was at Michigan State, he competed against Stanford for an institute on research on teaching and won. Stanford retaliated quickly with a preemptive strike. They hired him so they wouldn't have to compete against him. And it was at Stanford that Lee did much of his groundbreaking work on teacher knowledge and teacher assessment, developing the prototype for what ultimately became the National Board for Professional Teaching Standards, with people who are here in this room tonight. Again, Lee spoke. This time, he spoke the words, Pedagogical content knowledge and created a veritable cottage industry of research on this topic. As a matter of fact, I just came back from a trip to Leiden in the Netherlands, where they're all busy doing research on pedagogical content knowledge in science, in Dutch, no less. <laughs> Lee left Stanford in 1997 to become the president of the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, an institution whose mission is to encourage, uphold, and dignify the profession of the teacher, a mission that Lee has been true to throughout his entire career. While at Carnegie, he uh, created the Carnegie Academy of the Scholarship of Teaching and Learning, a think tank of sorts for teachers, and has extended his work on teaching to higher education and professional education, returning in many ways to the work on medical education that first um, focused him um, on this cognitive work of professions to begin with. Uh, The talk tonight is based on this work, the Carnegie study of uh, preparing preparation for the professions. And given his track record, I'm expecting the words rounds and rotations to become another signature phrase, igniting a new way of thinking about professional education around the world. But Lee has other passions besides teaching. Some of you may have heard Lee's recording on NPR, in which he professed his belief in pastrami. I'm quite sure he's the only person who's given that talk on this, I believe, in NPR to mention cured meats. But once you know that Lee grew up in a delicatessen, you begin to understand the source of his metaphor. Lee believes in pastrami because he believes in a well-marbled life, a life in which work, family, friends, the personal and the professional congeal. And I learned this about Lee the very first time I met him, which was in this very building. Lee had invited me to come visit him, once I'd been accepted at Stanford, uh, to talk about the doctoral program. I, at the time, had a nine-month-old son, and I didn't think it was really very professional to show up um, in a prospective advisor's office with a baby on my hip, so I recruited a friend to come with me and watch him while I met with Lee. No sooner did Lee learn that I had a son and that that son was just you know a few hundred yards away than he insisted on um, my going to get Ben and bringing him into the office. And Lee and Judy have been a part of our extended family ever since, folding us into their very well marbled life. Lee has given me lots of advice over the years. In fact, he often jokes that my PhD came with a lifetime warranty, and I've certainly gotten my money's worth. But the best advice I ever got from Lee was not from his words, but from his actions, through the way he's lived his life and done his work with integrity and passion. I'm honored to introduce him to you tonight.
1: Thank you, Pam. I, I now have evidence for certain that you were the daughter of a pediatrician, not the owner of a delicatessen. If the meat begins to congeal, you don't. You send the sandwich back. <laughs> I've eaten at your house many times, and nothing is congealed. Yeah, and she 's a vegetarian that 's true <laughs> well it's uh, It feels very good to be back here at Stanford to uh, have a chance. It feels in some ways like picking up where I left off some twelve years ago uh, with what I hope will be all of the fun and none of the responsibility. Uh, What I'd like to invite you to do this evening as a kind of prolegomenon to the hors d'oeuvres that Nancy has promised are going to be out there in the hall after I finish. Is that right, Nancy? Thank you. Uh, There were some things I insisted she do before she retired. I'd like you to join me on three journeys this evening. Journey may be claiming more for them than they deserve. They may seem more like meanders, kind of informal walks in the woods. And like meanders, they will occasionally double back on themselves. They will occasionally exhibit a kind of redundancy, perhaps not just twice, but maybe three times, given that I've suggested three journeys. And I would like these journeys to help us think about the challenges of educating people to profess. And there's a lovely ambiguity about the notion of professing because in our studies at Carnegie, in some beautiful parallel studies that Pam Grossman and her students have been doing here at Stanford at the same time, When we talk about professing, we have been focusing on learning to be professionals, learning to be physicians, lawyers, engineers, priests, nurses, teachers. But the word has great elasticity, because to learn to profess can also mean to learn to be a professor. And so at the same time that we were studying professional education at Carnegie. We also spent about six years studying the PhD experience and how people learn to be professional scholars. And there it was in a wide variety of fields from neurosciences to education, from English and history to mathematics and chemistry. And we found some really lovely parallels between the challenges of teaching people to profess as members of professions and to profess their disciplines and interdisciplines as scholars, teachers, and public servants. Even more broadly, the word profess can be used to talk about the development of personal and civic arts. We profess our responsibilities. During the past few months, Many of us professed our civic responsibilities by actively campaigning for candidates for Congress or for the presidency. We've also been known to profess our love, our faith, our commitments of all kinds. So the notion of professing has both a narrow and focused kind of connotation and also a set of concentrically broadening connotations that make it both a wonderful idea to explore and a challenging one as well. So what are these three journeys I'd like you to take with me? The first is a journey with the three young and gifted princes of the kingdom of Serendip, a kingdom that we now call Sri Lanka, but I like Serendip much better than either that or Ceylon. And the adventures that they had, which led to the invention of a very, very interesting and delicious to pronounce word that we now so closely associate with those three princes that we have obliterated the source of the word and use serendipity quite independent of its roots. So the first journey will be a journey to serendip, and to exploring what the word means and the ideas that flow from it. The second journey I'd like you to take And I have several Carnegie colleagues here who, if I err in my representation of their work, will probably be kind enough not to correct it during the reception afterwards. Uh, But Ann, Bill, you know that my general tendency is to make your work look a lot better than it is, not to shortchange it. (laughs) And I'm going to explore with you what we learned about the professions during the last decade of work in which we explored how people learn to profess. And then you might ask what in the world do the princes of Serendip have to do with the pedagogies of the professions? That's the third trip. (laughs) That's the third journey. The attempt to see if we can examine where these two roads intersect and what we might learn from exploring the intersection. So return with me now to the morning of January 28, 1754, when Horace Walpole sat down at his desk in his very, very, uh, wealthy and large mansion for his daily ritual of correspondence. Now, like the rest of us, many of whom now religiously, perhaps obsessively, get up in the morning and either before or after that first cup of coffee log on to our email and begin our correspondence, we know more than 300 years later that Horace Walpole was perhaps the greatest letter writer in history. He wrote magnificent letters, and it appears that nearly every one of them has been preserved. This is not the case with the email that you and I send uh, regularly. In fact, uh, Rich, I've already erased today's email from you, I'm sorry, but it's, and so none of us will be able to supplant Mr. Walpole as the greatest letter writer ever. But that morning, Walpole was writing to his good friend and distant cousin, Horace Mann, a familiar name to us as educators, alas, a different Horace Mann, uh, who was then living in Florence, And he was describing an accidental discovery that he had just made the previous week, where he had not been intentionally looking for something, but had quite accidentally tripped over something else, and it had been a very important source of insight. And he writes to Horace Mann, because it appears that the only thing he liked better than writing letters was inventing new words, that I call this kind of discovery serendipity. Serendipity is an act, an experience, that combines accident with sagacity. That is what happens when people make discoveries by accident and sagacity of things they were not in quest of. And then anticipating that Horace Mann will ask him, why why in the world did you call it serendipity? He proceeds, these are long letters he wrote, to tell the tale of the three princes of serendipity, whose father, a philosopher king, educated them at the hands of the greatest scholars of their generation in the sciences and the humanities as they were then known. But then, feeling that having just learned all that book stuff, the basic sciences as it were, the foundations of education, did not prepare them to become rulers of Serendip, he told them they had to go off on a journey where they would gain the necessary experiences to transform their knowledge into the kind of wisdom and moral courage needed in a ruler. And the tales of Serendip, which by the way, are a kind of canonical tale, canonical legend, the versions of which you find in many other cultures as well, there's a version in the Talmud, there's a version in Chinese literature, they continue to engage in adventures where their success again and again relies on their ability to see things they weren't looking for and then later to make use of what they learned by accident to solve problems and riddles that confront them. And for that reason, says Walpole, I call this serendipity. Well, the word caught on. And people became, often. as often happens when you coin a word, the word becomes a lens for reviewing and re-understanding experiences you've had for a long time. That's what theories often do, what concepts often do. And the notion of the importance of chance, of accident, of discovering things you hadn't intended to look for, became more and more popular. And one of the big arguments was, do great discoveries really happen by chance, by accident? Or do only certain kinds of minds exploit the opportunity that the accident presents to develop insights, theories, and new understandings. And as the philosopher William Hewell said about Isaac Newton, certainly nearly every human being who ever walked the face of the earth saw fruit falling from trees and other objects falling from greater heights. But it took the genius of Isaac Newton to use that as the stimulus for developing a theory of gravitation. And I became much more interested in this question in reading recently a book by someone whom I've long admired. I consider him one of my teachers at a distance, the late Robert Merton. He and Eleanor Barber wrote a book called The Travels and Adventures of Serendipity, in which they explore in great detail the history of this idea in the sciences, in the arts, in the humanities, and in popular discourse. It was one of those books that should give some of you heart, which they finished writing in the late 50s and put aside, and it was published a few years ago. So go back to those files and don't give up. And Merton explores this question of to what extent can you really attribute these discoveries to chance, and to what extent must you ascribe them to having a particular kind of mind ready to make sense of the chance when it occurs. The the phrase that we so often associate with this phenomenon is attributed to Louis Pasteur, who had this experience more than once. And Pasteur's phrase is the one most of us know best. And of course, it stands as a theory, if you will, a theory of the middle range in Merton's terms. Chance favors prepared minds, not just any mind. Pasteur was referring, among other things, to his experience Where he was trying to develop a vaccine against chicken cholera, and he developed a compound, informed his assistant to vaccinate the chickens, but the compound was too weak, and they didn't become ill. So a few weeks later, seeing that the chickens were still healthy, he greatly increased the intensity of the compound and informed his, instructed his assistant to use it on the chickens, the same set of chickens once again. And the assistant came back and he said, I'm sorry, it didn't work. None of the chickens are ill. We just better throw it all out and start with another group of chickens. It was Pasteur who realized that they should have become ill. And the only thing that distinguished them from other chickens was the failure of the attenuated compound several weeks earlier. They had discovered a principle for vaccinating chickens against chicken cholera, the use of a weakened form of the disease. Chance favors prepared minds. We all know the story of Alexander Fleming and the experiences that led to the development of penicillin and subsequently other antibiotics. Chance favors the prepared mind. Fleming was certainly not the first person to leave something out and see mold growing on it. He probably wasn't even the first one to notice that it killed the bacteria that were in the Petri dish. The notion that this wasn't an annoyance but a discovery was Fleming's. But I see these experiences through the eyes of an educator. And so for me, the question did not remain the sociology of science question, what accounts for these discoveries by unusual people over centuries? For me, it became a question of education. And the question was, If the world abounds with accidents, with unpredictable, unforeseen, unanticipated events, like every day of our lives, if we're professionals, we often call such events cases because they don't fit the normal mold then perhaps our responsibility as educators is to figure out how to prepare minds for chance favors. How do we create conditions of teaching and learning, conditions of education, where more and more human minds, more and more human beings, whatever they're going to spend their lives doing, but in the case of the work we've been doing, if they're going to be teachers, or physicians, or lawyers, or engineers, or nurses, or rabbis, or journalists, so that the unexpected does not become simply a barrier to be avoided and fled from, but becomes a chance favor, an opportunity to exploit the accidental in the pursuit of either the same goals or new goals? That became the question that I was most interested in looking at. Now, what does that look like in practice? What does it look like in practice? Let me give one example, one that some of you probably know. Uh, uh, It's an example from a the work of a good friend of many of ours, Deborah Ball. In fact, this is an example I like so much, I used to use it when I taught STEP, it seemed like 40 years ago, I don't know, No, just a few years ago. How many of you have seen the videotape of Shea Numbers? Yes, oh, okay, a few. Okay, I will now, if we had more time, I'd ask you to come up, we would act it out who wants to be Shay? I want to be Lynn. I mean, the little, oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, mathematics teaching is a highly ritualized, routinized, regular form of practice. And I mean that in a good way. There are certain patterns, just as there are patterns for teaching reading in the primary grades and the use of reading groups in certain fashions, There are regular patterns in teaching mathematics. Deborah Ball, now the dean of the School of Education at the University of Michigan, this is 1989, spent the entire year teaching a third-grade mathematics curriculum in Spartan Village School in East Lansing, Michigan, and every moment of that year was videotaped. Back when videotape recorders did not fit into the palm of your hand. If you were lucky, they fit into a small room and took two strong people to wheel them around. She had just finished teaching a unit on odd and even numbers. You all know about odd and even numbers. It's one of those remnants of elementary mathematics that few of us forget. And the students had taken an assessment. They pretty much all understood what odd and even meant and what distinguished the two kinds of numbers. And they're about to go to their next unit when, without warning, an accident happens. Chance occurs. A young man named Shay raises his hand in the back of the room. And Deborah says, yes, Shay." And he says, I've been thinking. I've been thinking about six. You know, I've been thinking six can be odd and even. Well, you know, we've just established that numbers are either odd or even. These are not categories that overlap. He didn't come up with the the great mathematical exterminator zero as his example, thank God, they were going to do that later. Six. Well, this is not something that Deborah expected. This was an accident. Now, she could have handled it, of course, the way many of us handle such accidents. You know, That's a very interesting idea, Shay. Let's talk about it after class. Or You know, Shay, that's just not correct. Six is an even number, uh, but we'll follow it. No. Deborah said, well, I have to understand why you think so. What's your reasoning here? Why do you think six is both odd and even? And Shay begins by saying, well, you can make a six out of two threes, Or three twos, and two is even, and three is odd. So six is both odd and even. That's a third grader, not one of the stars of the class. Well, chance favors prepared minds. If you haven't ever seen this tape, find someone who has it. It takes all of about 11 or 13 minutes, and it's, it's beautiful. Because Deborah engages the entire class of third graders in examining this principle. In examining Shay's conjecture. And seeing how they can test its validity. They use number lines. They use diagrams on the board. They go back to the mathematical definition of odd and even. But what ensues is a remarkable class, one of the consequences of which was that for the next few sessions, other members of the class continued to explore Shays' conjecture and even called what they were looking at, Shea numbers. You know, Why should it only be Fermat's last theorem? Why not Shea's numbers? Now, I, the reason I mention that particular incident is although it is enshrined now in the archives of pedagogy, as Shea numbers, tens of thousands of people around the world know of this event and interpret it in a variety of ways. When it occurred, the moment it occurred, it surprised the hell out of Deborah. She couldn't possibly have seen it coming. And yet, she took advantage of that accident, that surprise, to move the discourse in directions she hadn't anticipated, but which in the long run became quite positive. But the question is, how do you prepare people to do that sort of thing? How do you prepare them on the one hand for what most of professional work looks like, which is at a high level, routine, regular, predictable, ordered, and ordinary in the sense of ordered. It has a flow that is predictable. And in fact, much of what we do in preparing people to profess is to teach them the rules of that road, the rules of that flow, and how on a regular basis, to manage a classroom, to take a medical history, to take a deposition, to choose a jury, to, to what well, you can go on and on. So how, on the one hand, do we prepare people for the often highly complex, demanding, challenging ordinariness of the flow of professional work? and yet also prepare them for chance favors, for surprise, for the unpredictable, for the unanticipated, for, as I said before, what we often label cases. I mean, think about the word case for a moment, and also think about now moving to my second journey, which is looking at how professionals are prepared and the ways in which my colleagues and I looked at this question over the last decade, look at how frequently some version of case is the pedagogical prompt and prop on which the pedagogy of the profession is organized. The case dialogue method in legal education. Who can forget the paper chase and the way in which cases are argued and interrogated and used as weapons of terror in the first year of law school, built around legal cases, case presentations in medicine and nursing. We don't use the notion of case, but one could argue that in the design portion of engineering courses, each design challenge and the kind of response a student make to it are cases of design, are cases of creation and of invention. When you think about the word case, at least when I do, I'm reminded of Jerome Bruner's definition of narrative. Bruner said that a narrative is an account of the vicissitudes of intention. That's almost as much fun to say as serendipity. The vicissitudes of intention. That's what a story is. You know where you're going. You know what the flow ought to be. And then something happens that disrupts that flow. Little Red Riding Hood went into the woods to bring her grandmother lunch, and she did. That's a story. That's not a narrative. That's not a narrative. In fact, when... when. Two-year-olds or three-year-olds tell us stories like that because they're trying to tell us a story or a joke. We laugh simply because they haven't got it yet. They haven't figured out what makes something a narrative. But the vicissitudes of that's what a case is. A case is a disruption of the flow. My, my old teacher, Joseph Schwab, talked about something similar when he asked, why are some days or weeks called occasions or occurrences? because the word occurrence or occasion is an occlusion of the flow. It's a break in the current. You've got a set of expectations about how the ordinary world works and then you occlude the flow with an occasion. very similar kind of insight. So now, come with me as we look at the way in which professionals are prepared. We looked at law first. One of the first things that strikes you about legal education is during the first year or year and a half, at one level, every class looks the same. They've got case books, and there is a kind of confrontational neo-Socratic pedagogy that characterizes class after class after class. In medical terms, so I don't disappoint you, the different classes on different topics are like rotations. You rotate through contracts, you rotate through evidence, you rotate through uh, criminal, you rotate through torts, through constitutional. I mean, those are the different rotations. They're parallel to OBGYN, medicine, surgery, etc., pediatrics. But within each of those, It looks like you do the same thing day after day after day. Those are rounds. Every day, you go through a similar kind of protocol of teaching and learning. In medical and nursing schools, it's built around patients. In law school, it's built around legal cases, usually appeals court cases. But what is so striking about it is even though they look so different at the surface, bedside teaching and teaching 120 students in a law school contracts course look incredibly different. But underneath that surface, there are a set of commonalities, a set of common elements. And the very first of them, I think, is the routine, the regularity, the repetitiveness, It is not thoughtless rotation and rounds, not thoughtless repetition, but it is routinization nevertheless. The students learn the dance. They learn the steps. They and the teachers learn what's expected of them. Nevertheless, the element of surprise of novelty is always there to punctuate the regularity. Every case is different. Every case presents new challenges. And yet the protocol for dealing with them remains the same. And so you have, on the one hand, the socialization into the challenges of the routine. And yet at the same time, you have the punctuation, kind of the diacritical marks of novel challenges, each one of which is unique in some ways, even as it bears some family resemblance to others that preceded or followed. Now, in the work that we did on the professions, our first insight, and one that Bill Sullivan and Ann Colby, who were with us today have developed beautifully in their writings, is that to learn to be a professional is to learn habits of mind, learn to think like a lawyer, think like a priest. If you're working on a PhD, it's think like a historian. Habits of practice or habits of the hand You're developing technical skills that are appropriate to the particular profession you're learning, and also habits of the heart. Habits of the heart usually being defined as the types of moral and ethical development that are part of your formation as a professional, and in some sense as a human being, and which become the essence of your identity. But that's what professional learning is about. About understanding, about skill, and about the development of values in a manner that will ultimately, in the best of worlds, integrate into an identity. Another thing that we saw was that these pedagogies shared certain structural characteristics. First of all, learning was a very public act. It was not like it is here, where I'm the only one in public, and you can sit quietly, and I have no idea what's going on in your mind. I've got some suspicions, but then again, you're older than most college groups. In professional learning, whether you're talking about 120 students in a law class or eight in a rounds situation in nursing or a similar number around a design table in mechanical engineering, the performances are public, they are visible, they are in that sense accountable, You are expected not only to perform your own understanding, but to show an understanding of what the other colleagues have said, what meaning they've gleaned. Learning is very social. It's communal, as well as visible. It is all done under conditions of uncertainty, of unpredictability, and there's often an emotional investment. Very few of you are feeling any modicum of anxiety at the moment, unless you're worrying about the quality of the hors d'oeuvres. But if you're one of 120 students in a law school class, you're on the edge of that seat because I might call on Krista next. Chances are one out of 120, but you never know, you come prepared. Same thing on rounds, where I'm responsible for presenting certain patients. Same thing in engineering, where I've got my design that has to be the object of a charrette. So the emotional investment is there in these pedagogies as well. And I've been calling these the signature pedagogies of the professions, focusing on what is common across their features rather than what distinguishes them. But again, one of the things you see is that they typically exemplify this interesting tension between regularity, pattern, repetition, and routine, and the critical role of judgments under uncertainty as represented by cases or designs or eulogies. Pam Grossman did some studies of how rabbinical students learn to give eulogies. Now in one sense, you've been to one funeral, you've been to all of them, right? They sort of begin with the same event and they end in the same location. Now if you're a rabbi, you've got less than 24 hours to prepare a eulogy because the deceased has got to be buried within 24 hours, you know what the script is, you know what the structure is, it's routine, it's regular. And yet you've got to develop a eulogy that is unique to this person with a personal history, with a set of reminiscences, nostalgias, enmities, and resentments that the family is quick to tell you about the night before and you've got to filter those through. I mean, if everybody in the family thought this person was a son of a bitch, it's going to be hard to simply say, as everyone knows, this man was a saint. So you've got to find that middle road, and you probably have to connect it to the biblical portion that's being read in the synagogue that week, and maybe to the recent elections. You're juggling all of those. It's called the exercise It's the subtitle of our book, Educating Clergy, of the Pastoral Imagination. So you get the combination of the regular, the protocol, the pattern, with the utterly novel, unique challenges, and that's what it means to learn to be a professional. You've got to learn both. And the challenge of professional education in all these fields is to somehow deal with both, with both the intention and the vicissitudes, with in the terms that are used in Hebrew, but there are parallels in all, I think, theologies, the tension between keva and kavana, between religious observance that has a regular day after day pattern. If you're Muslim, that you pray five times a day in the same manner, in the same direction. If you're Jewish, it's three times a day. All of these things that are done with regularity, and the question is, is this sort of regular practice of ritual antithetical to kavanah, to having a deep, exciting, meaningful spiritual experience? Does ritual deaden the opportunity for spiritual experience? Or should you do away with all of the regularity and wait for the lightning to strike or the voice to be heard. The tension is a very similar kind of tension. Now, how does pedagogy prepare you for that? Well, Ann Colby, Colby, in a phrase that is succinct and beautifully economical, compressed the principles of these pedagogies into three words. She said what characterized them is enactment, dailiness, and embodiment. Thank you for that, Ann Colby. Enactment. The pedagogies call upon the students not simply to hear and understand what it is they're supposed to be learning to do, they are again and again required cognitively as well as behaviorally to enact what it is that they're learning. And to do so publicly, socially, visibly, accountably. But connected to that is dailiness. They don't just do it once. You don't build the course around the project. The one unit plan to kill all unit plans. The one clinical case that you're going to round to death. But instead there is a dailiness, there is a repetition. If you think about the notion of habits of mind and habits of the heart and habits of practice, you don't develop habits by doing something once. And so enactment is connected to dailiness to creating a flow of regularity and habit and ritual almost. And finally, embodiment. When Anne first used that word, I really puzzled over it. Anne, you might have puzzled over it when you used it too. It's, just, it's a delicious word, it's a lovely word. What does it mean to embody? In part, it means that those of us who teach exhibit in a variety of ways, totally and fully, the kinds of attributes we want the students to develop. But it also means in some ways that the other aspects, the intellectual, the skills, the values, all get embodied, they get taken in, they get integrated. They become, indeed, part of our identities. And as we watch people engage with new challenges, with new activities that just throw incredibly complex new challenges at them, we often see them asking themselves, gee, how would my professor deal with this problem? How would whoever is my role model respond when faced with something like that? I mean, when when devout Christians ask, what would Jesus do? That's a similar kind of heuristic. It is saying, in this circumstance, how should I behave? And when those values have now moved from being externally located in somebody else You're asking how, given what I understand myself to be, should someone like me behave in this situation? I mean, think about how we confront such problems. How should a person like me behave? What should I expect of myself in this kind of circumstance? Which makes identity more than the development of values and attitudes, which are terribly important, more than the development of social responsibility and a commitment to social justice. It makes the notion of identity, the integration, pastrami-like, of all of those features into a human being of a certain kind. And you do it through enactment, dailiness, and embodiment. And I think those are three very interesting standards to hold up against any form of professional preparation, whether it's the preparation of teachers or of engineers, that we care to take seriously. To what extent do the pedagogies of these fields, in fact, reflect this set of features and values? One example that comes to mind was when we were observing a class in nursing. It was a course in pathophysiology. And all of the nursing students in the class were already on the clinic floor at the same time that they're taking the class. It was much like our teacher education program here at Stanford, where the students are spending half the day out in the field. And what they were focusing on was a very, very frightening phenomenon that nurses have to understand deeply called sepsis. Sepsis. Sepsis is what happens when the body overreacts to an infection. And an overreacting begins to cause problems with the organ systems that sometimes are more dangerous than the original infection itself. Sometimes the infection occurs spontaneously. Sometimes the infection is iatrogenic, is actually introduced by earlier attempts to provide medical care. Very often, in fact, they are. Sepsis is very dangerous because it is, it creates a cascade of dysfunctions as organs begin to shut down, and if uncontrolled, it can lead to death. And Lisa Day, the professor of nursing in this situation, is very evocatively describing the pathophysiology. And we've got diagrams of organ systems and descriptions of what they look like when they're shutting down. And the students are you know, rapidly taking notes and then she says, now, what do nurses have to do under these circumstances? And she explains that the management of sepsis is really the nurse's responsibility because the nurse is the person who's there with the patient all the time. Others may not even notice the symptoms of sepsis. And the students are you know, getting even more involved. And then she talks about a particular case that several of the students had seen the week before which required intubation. You no, the intubation of the patient's putting a tube down through, and she began showing again, reviewing the practical procedures of intubation. So she's connecting the theory to the practice, and you're thinking, wow. And then she steps back and says, okay, nurses, let me ask you a question that you may be the only one in the room who thinks to ask at this point in the crisis. As you come to the side of the patient who's surrounded by all these people frantically looking at the gauges and the dials and poking and prodding, and now somebody shows up with this tube and starts opening the patient's mouth up, how do you think the patient is feeling about this? What's going through the patient's mind? And, of course, one of the students said, the patient's terrified. They're scared to death. They're, and then Lisa said, then what are you going to do about it? What is your responsibility at that moment? We debriefed the students afterward. I have a feeling that, like me, and this occurred four years ago, it's one of those peak pedagogical experiences that those students won't forget, as I haven't forgotten, because it somehow was an embodiment of the integration of the intellectual and the practical and the moral. And saying to the nurse, you are responsible for terror, not only for tracheas. And That's who you are, and you've got to be asking yourself that question all the time. How is the patient feeling, reacting, responding to all the buzzing, blooming confusion of medical care going around her, whether she's in the ICU or in a doctor's office? That's the notion of integration, and it was, It was was a punctuation point and otherwise the flow of the pedagogy in that nursing program. How many of those do you do? How frequent can you punctuate without having no flow at all? How does it vary from profession to profession? These are some of the challenges we face. So let me conclude then with a story from Kate Stimson Some of you may know Kate Stimson as one of the great feminist literary scholars of the last generation. She was the founding editor of Signs, the scholarly journal. She uh, is now the dean of the graduate school at NYU. She was president of the Modern Language Association and we were blessed with her membership on the Carnegie Foundation board for eight years, a term that ends Tomorrow, Kate wrote an article in Ms. Magazine in 1982 called In the Company of Children, and in the article she was describing her decision as an unmarried woman who never had children of her own to join with her partner in the raising of four adolescents. who became part of her daily part of her life. And people would ask her, why the hell would you do that? And she's trying to explain in this very brief essay in The Company of Children why she did that. Why, if you will, she disrupted the flow of life which she had become so comfortable with as a single, you know, an unmarried female academic with a superb research career to take on the raising of four adolescents who would become her own. And she writes about it, I am sure that I have tested several forms of dailiness. Some people accuse me of acting unconsciously. I wanted a new fusion of responsibility and surprise, of routine and shock, of ritual and unpredictability, touches that did not have to be renegotiated at least for a while, jokes that did not have to be explained. I especially like that last phrase because in many ways what epitomizes the kinds of episodes I'm talking about are jokes. A joke only works if it is in some ways a surprise. The better surprise, the better the punchline. It hits you, but you're incapable of surprise unless you begin with a set of expectations with a set of norms of shared knowledge, shared understanding, a set of shared regularities. When you tell a joke that needs to be explained, it usually means that you're telling it to members of a community other than your own who don't get the joke because they don't have the expectations that would make this a surprise. But notice, a joke implies that you have both. That you both share the flow and can appreciate the surprise. And Kate Stimson is talking about being a member of a community, in this case a family, one of whose characteristics is that you can tell jokes that don't have to be explained. Well, folks, I think in many ways that defines the challenge, or a challenge, of educating professionals. It is finding ways to induct others into professional communities of practice where they have a sufficiently shared identity that the jokes don't have to be explained, where they have a sufficient sense of variations of expectations, that they don't miss the signals, that they're in the presence of a case, and that when six is even and odd, it's not something to be ignored. It's something to be built upon. The joke that doesn't need to be explained. And of course, in the deepest sense, it is the development of professional identity which incorporates all of these but becomes sufficiently personal for the person learning the profession that when they act under uncertainty, they feel it is they who are acting and they who have the responsibility not some abstract other who is their role model. There's a lovely story about Rabbi Zuzia in the Talmud who is on his deathbed, and he begins to weep. And his students are gathered around him and they say, oh, Rabbi Zusia, are you weeping because you're afraid to die? He said, oh, no. Well, are you weeping because you fear that when you die and go to heaven, you will be asked, why weren't you more like Moses? And Zeusia responds, no, no, no. What frightens me is not being asked, why weren't you more like Moses? What frightens me is being asked, why weren't you more like Zeusia? That's the challenge, my friends, for those of us who prepare teachers, for those of us who prepare lawyers and engineers and physicians, priests and rabbis, so to help them integrate the commonplace and the unusual and their own sense of being an identity, that they can truly act their profession in a way that is both personal and communal at the same time. Thank you.